Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, OSHA Reporting and You, sponsored by KPA. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. From our team at the National Safety Council, we hope you all are safe and well amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today will be Zach Pachulo. Zach is an EHS team supervisor at KPA who has been with the organization for more than 13 years. He's a certified safety professional and a certified hazardous materials manager, as well as a former OSHA outreach trainer. Zach, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Hello, everybody. So in my agenda today, I'm going to be talking about the importance of record keeping. Why do we have to go about doing this record keeping injury and illness reporting forms? We'll talk about who needs to comply with the record keeping. Uh, over the past few years, there has been some updates with the electronic submissions, so I'll cover a little bit about that and whether or not you might be exempt from doing the recording at all. We're going to talk about a recordable case versus a reportable case. And we're also going to determine what is an actual recordable case. A lot of times I find that the facilities that I go to, I take a look at their OSHA 300 forms, and I see cases on there where they didn't actually have to record the injury at all. Uh, that's where the whole definition of first aid comes into play. And is this a recordable injury based off of, did it require more than first aid? And we'll get into that definition as well so that you're not overcomplicating the forms because you might be actually recording injuries that did not need to be recorded at all on the actual OSHA 300 form. We're going to talk about the actual process of once you've determined you do have a recordable injury, how do you go about recording that? And are you filling out all the forms the correct way? We'll also at that point get into the electronic submission. And then finally, at the end, I've got some frequently asked questions. So without further ado, uh, but the importance of record keeping. <clears throat> Well, you could read all the bullet points here. Uh, these are all the nice fluff things that come straight off the OSHA website as far as why we need to be uh, doing the record keeping. And we do want to make sure that we are looking for trends. What is the trend, the common theme that is plaguing our facility when it comes to the accidents and injuries that we've had over the past year? So we're keeping track of work-related injuries to help you prevent them from happening in the future. Of course, that's the ultimate goal. We don't want anybody to get hurt. We're using injury and illness data to help identify problem areas and processes. The more you know, the better you can identify and correct the hazards. Well, of course, if you actually analyze the data and if you do some root cause analysis, you'll be able to determine, okay, here's where we're actually lacking and insufficient in our safety program. We need more training, or we need to take a look at this process. We actually have a lot of faults in this process. Uh, the third bullet point, you can better administer company safety and health programs with accurate records. Well, of course, yeah, we can analyze the data and we can actually see are we improving over the past years or are we on a decline when it comes to our safety record. As employee awareness about injuries, illnesses, and hazards in the workplace improves, workers are more likely to follow safe work practices. The more you know, the more awareness that you're going to have around the facility, such as through training then and maybe personal protective equipment, for example. The more focus you put on personal protective equipment, yeah, the more awareness an employee is going to have and the higher likelihood that you're going to have less injuries play you. You do want to make sure you're maintaining your records for five years and for more access provisions basically on those records and who can obtain those and have a look at those, you can actually see these sections. But when we come right down to it, when it comes to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, there's another item that I wanted to pull up, OSHA.gov. Here we have the United States Department of Labor. and if you go into enforcement, 
regional local emphasis programs. And you can take a look at your region, such as where I live at, I'm actually in Region 5 out here in the Midwest. Down below here, you can see all the different local emphasis programs that they have going on currently that might affect an industry that you happen to be in. This is basically the high target area. These are things that they are specifically looking into because of data that they have received from these Bureau of Labor and Statistics and also from collecting random samples from different uh, facilities out there when they've actually done their inspections. Uh, for instance, this one actually affects a lot of different industries and we've seen inspections targeted specifically at the powered industrial trucks. We're talking forklifts on site. A lot of different injuries and fatalities have happened due to forklift accidents that have happened at the workplace. Therefore, they are having a local emphasis program where they might show up on site and they are doing a specific inspection on your powered industrial vehicles. This data, like I said, comes from a lot of these different uh, Bureau of Labor and Statistic information gathering. Also, it comes from when they go out on site and they do an inspection, they might look at the OSHA 300 forms and they're seeing, oh, okay, we're having a spike in injuries when it comes to powered industrial vehicles. We should actually put a local emphasis program together on that. So who needs to actually comply with record keeping? Well, it's easier if I cover the exemptions to see if you're actually exempt. Basically, you have to do a form of record keeping unless you are a small employer, meaning that you have 10 or fewer employees at all times during the work year. If you have 10 or fewer employees, then you don't have to actually keep the record keeping. You don't have to do the OSHA 300, 301, 300A forms if you choose not to. It's still a best management practice to do so because, of course, we're trying to identify the trends and make sure that employees are as safe as possible. And for your workers' compensation processes as well, too, probably a good idea because you don't want those spiking. There's also a low hazard industry exemption, and they basically, OSHA will put out a list of partially exempt industries. You still have to comply with reporting claims, but it is not a requirement to maintain the OSHA 300 logs if you are actually on this list. Still a best management practice to do so. How do you know if you're on this list or not? Well, in the past, they used to go by what was called the standard industry code. Basically, it was a four-digit code or five-digit code that told you specifics about your industry or kind of a generalized, I shouldn't say specifics, but generalized about your industry, such as the dairy industry might be a code uh, 9911. Uh, they've recently switched to the North American Industry Classification System, or what you would call the NICS codes. And this is the list that they go off of using now. If you actually go to www.nix.com and they have a search heading there, you could actually type in uh, some information about your facility and you will be able to find your NICS code. For instance, say that you are a car dealership. Uh, if you type in car dealer, you're probably going to pull up this listing here and you can see 441110 is your actual NICS code. What you can do then is at that point is, uh, if you go to this link over here on the right-hand side, this is that list of partially exempt industries. If this code shows up over on this listing here, then it is not a requirement for you to maintain the record-keeping forms. However, that's only partial exemption. So if you are requested by OSHA still to keep these forms, or if the Bureau of Labor and Statistics does a random sampling and they require you to keep these forms throughout the year, uh, you do have to maintain those. Also, on reportable accidents and injuries, you still have to report those as well too. So like I said, it's only a partially exempted list. You still might have to record those based off of whether you know, you've been asked by the actual agency or not. Okay, so let's say that now you've determined, okay, I'm not on the partially exempt list. I have more than 10 employees. Well, guess what? We have to maintain a recordable injury and illness log. Therefore, let's say that you have an actual injury that does happen on site. We have to determine first, is this a recordable injury or not? And then we're going to determine if it's recordable, is it a reportable injury? So first off, let's determine if this is recordable. It must be work-related. A lot of times it's pretty easy to prove that it's been work-related. If you have somebody that's out on the shop floor and they basically get some dirt debris into their eye, then you have a probably a good starting point determining, okay, so far this is work-related. Does it require medical attention beyond first aid? This is where it trips up a lot of people. So that dirt debris that was in that employee's eye, let's say that they go to 
uh, the med check clinic and the physician that's on site is able to use an eye flush solution and was able to basically get that dirt debris out of the eye and there's no extra pain medication or anything like that. They're sent home for the rest of the day. That is basically medical attention that is not beyond first aid. Irrigating the eye is considered first aid, whether it's done at the facility, whether it's done at the clinic. Therefore, it did not require medical attention beyond first aid. It is not a recordable injury. Now, let's say that dirt debris that got into that employee's eye did cause a pretty severe scratch to the eyeball, and the employee was then treated with drops and uh, was given some medication that they needed to use on a daily basis. Now we're talking treatment beyond first aid. And at this point, this is going to be a recordable injury. So on the right-hand side, you can see examples of non-work-related. And what we're talking about here is basically, does it occur in the general public? Certain parking lot accidents. So that's a particular one that can get really specific. Basically, were they still on their commute to work or not? You know, if they slipped and fell on ice in the parking lot, that can still be considered work-related. There are certain stipulations when it comes to that. Uh, is it a non-work-induced mental illness? Is it the cold or the flu? Cold or flu is not going to be considered work-related. That's a common virus that can happen. Injuries that arise from personal meals or grooming. So if you've got Susie that came in to work a little bit early, decided that she was going to go to the restroom first and curl her hair, she burned herself with her curling iron, that's grooming. That's got not going to be work-related at that point. That's not a recordable injury. Uh, was the injury self-inflicted or from self-medication? I worked with a facility one time where uh, there were some guys that were doing some practical jokes and uh, they were <laughs> not the brightest of people and they decided they were going to actually uh, on a bet see if they could consume a whole bottle of maple syrup in one big gulp. <laughs> and the one guy that actually tried this attempt, he was actually a diabetic. Uh, he completed the task, went out to his car and passed out basically from a coma at that point. Uh, that's self-inflicted at this point, so that's not going to be work-related. Uh, so self-inflicted wounds or injuries, anything like that, are not going to be work-related. And then those occurring on premises due to outside factors such as natural disasters, we have an earthquake, hurricane, or anything like that that does happen, we're not considering that work-related as well. First aid. So I've got a listing here of what is considered first aid. If the injury or illness requires anything beyond this, then that is going to be a recordable case. If it falls under any of these type of situations, and I'm not going to go through all of these, uh, then it is technically not a recordable case because it didn't go beyond first aid. So we're talking using non-prescription medications like Tylenol, uh, aspirins, different things like that, uh, cleaning, flushing, soaking wounds, hot or cold therapy. So if you put a cold pack on something, that could be a bruised contusion. Possibly that's just first aid and we're not talking about a recordable injury. <clears throat> Using eye patches, more than likely, it's probably going to turn into a recordable case because if you need an eye patch, you're probably going to the eye doctor and there's a good chance that they might be doing medication or possibly more than just irrigation of the eye. Uh, removing splinters, using finger guards, uh, drinking fluids for relief of heat stress, all considered first aid at that point. So a lot of times people have said in the past, well, does it require anything beyond basically the first aid kit? Well, yeah, but still, once you go off to the clinic and take a look here at these types of options, it still might not be a recordable case. It's just, did it go beyond any of these items when you were at the clinic? Then if it did, we have a recordable case. But if you've determined you have a recordable case, now we have to determine, is it a reportable case? And this is where we get real serious about injuries, and it'll be pretty, pretty easy to tell if we have a reportable case. And there are some stipulations when it comes to these. If at all you have a fatality that happens on site, that case must be reported within eight hours to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. If you have an injury that basically concerns an inpatient hospitalization of one or more employees, if there's an amputation as a result of a work-related incident, or if there's a loss of an eye as a result of the work-related incident, you must report that within 24 hours of it happening. The fatality and the inpatient hospitalizations, I've had some people that haven't really done their due diligence on that before. They have thought that this was all pre-existing conditions, and it could have been, for example, an inpatient hospitalization. There was a facility that I worked with where there was a gentleman that was a maintenance employee. It was a hot summer day. 
he was outside and he was actually instructed to tear down an old shed that was still on the property. He was doing so and ended up suffering from a bit of a stroke. And the facility decided, well, he's had prior conditions. This doesn't really affect us. Therefore, you know what, we're not going to report this. And so what happened did trigger an actual inspection, and they were actually fined for not doing the reporting in the first place because it was thought that it could have been linked to a heat stress type of stroke. So make sure that you are actually analyzing any type of one of these injuries and maybe doing some consulting with somebody, or you can actually always call and do the reporting as it is anyway, and then the Occupational Safety and Health Administration would help you determine whether or not that is reportable as well too. Once again, I understand you're opening up the floodgates by doing that, but you want to make sure that you're erring on the safe side. There's a note down here I do want to make sure that I do cover. If a fatality does occur within 30 days of the work-related incident or if an inpatient hospitalization, amputation, or loss of an eye occurs within 24 hours of work-related incident, then you must also report the event to OSHA. So if the work-related incident happens and the employee ends up passing away from that, and we'll say it's 40 days later, then that's that time period that we've actually gone past that grace period where that's not going to be considered the work-related incident anymore. Uh, same thing on the 24 hours on the amputation hospitalization. So how do you go about reporting in case you do have a case where you do need to report this type of fatality or serious injury to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration? Well, you can do so by telephone. There's a 24-hour hotline, and we do have the number on here. And there's also an electronic form uh, that you can use to report it at www.osha.gov. Uh, if your area office is closed, which you can report to your area office because that's going to prompt the most swiftest inspection time, uh, you must report it to the 1-800 number. So a lot of times over the weekends, the area office is going to be closed. I probably would not even recommend going to the area office in the first place. I would recommend actually calling the 1-800-321-OSHA phone number uh, or submitting it electronically to make sure that you're meeting the time requirements of the eight hours or the 24 hours. Some states do have some different plans out there. Uh, for instance, I know the state of Kentucky on the series incidents such as the inpatient hospitalization, they have 72 hours to report that. So uh, it's not 24 hours, it's actually 72 hours. So check with your state requirements because the times could be different. Uh, once again here, so a little bit more on the definitions. The inpatient hospitalization, so we're talking a formal admission to the inpatient service of a hospital or clinic for care or treatment. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have stayed overnight or anything like that. It means that they must be admitted to the inpatient service. If they have been, then you must report that within 24 hours of that happening. The amputation has some different definitions on here as well, too, some different, I guess, stipulations. So we're talking about a traumatic loss of a limb or external body part. And you can read here what we're talking about when it comes to the definition of an amputation. But down below, it says amputations do not include avulsions. We're talking tissue being torn away from the body. Uh, so like degloving of the skin, uh, if something happened that actually pulled the skin away from the finger, that's not considered an amputation under this defi definition. Still going to be a recordable case. Uh, and <laughs> definitely going to need medical attention, but it's not going to be a reportable because it doesn't meet that definition of amputation. If you do have a reportable injury or a recordable injury, you're going to need to take some swift action, and here's some information that you're going to need. Of course, you're going to need the establishment name, the location of the work-related incident, time of work-related incident, the type of reportable event, number of employees who suffered, the fatality or inpatient hospitalization amputation, names of the employee, your contact person, his or her phone number, and a brief description of the work-related incident. This information all sounds pretty familiar. And most of you probably have seen uh, a form that you might use in order to record this information. And that's what we're talking about, the OSHA 301 form. So now we're going to get into some of the record-keeping requirements. We're talking about the OSHA 301, the OSHA 300, and the OSHA 300A form. The OSHA 301 is basically going to be the incident report. It's going to be all about one particular incident that has happened on site. You are free to use the OSHA 301 form. Or you can use a different form, but it must be equivalent to the information kept on the 301. A lot of times, facilities will use their own incident reports or one that was provided by their insurance carrier or workers' compensation carrier. As you can see here, this asks a lot of information about the actual particular event. So this needs to be filled out within seven calendar days of the notification of the work-related injury or illness. 
uh, and you must keep this for five years or your other incident reports. You must have all this information available that could be presented to a compliance officer if required. So you're going to fill out one of these for any type of recordable or reportable case that you might have. Then you're going to take this form when you're done with it, and you're going to transfer it over to the OSHA 300 form. And this is a log that you keep throughout the year of all those different recordable cases. So case number one is going to go on line number one. We're going to have the employee's name, their job title, the date of the injury, where the event occurred, a brief description, and then we're going to check mark the boxes uh, for what specifically did happen, fill in the number of days away from work, the number of uh, days of job transfer restriction. And this is going to be, like I said, it's going to basically log each one of the different accidents that has happened. This is probably going to be the form that would be requested by a compliance officer if they ever did an inspection of your facility. They want to know what your accident record looks like over the past year. And if they see basically you have three pages of OSHA 300 forms, that's not really a great thing. <laughs> uh, we want to try to keep these as minimal as possible. I'm going to go through a couple of examples here. Uh, so basically, as you can see here, Shane Alexander, case number two, a foundry man. Uh, the date that it did happen, where the event occurred at in column E. Column F, we're going to describe the injury or illness. And then when we get over to column G, H, I, and J, we're only going to select one of those boxes, the most serious outcome for that actual case. So you should only have one check mark in boxes G, H, I, or J. You could end up filling out both boxes in K and L. So days away from work, you might have 12 in there, as you can see in this case. If they came back and they had a job transfer restriction, such as five days, you would put that in box L. And then finally, what injury column would this fit, classification fit under? You're going to put a check mark in only one of those boxes in box M. Here you can see, uh, if you take a look at case number four, Ralph Bacella, if you go over to that uh, boxes K and L, you can see where they have the number of days away from work and the number of job transfer restriction days as well too. Okay, here now we're going to get into that OSHA 300A form. So once I have all my information filled out on that OSHA 300 form, I've got my log. Now at the end of the year, I'm going to take this and I'm going to basically give a summary uh, coming from each one of those columns. So if I go back here, I'm going to take a look at column G. Okay, how many check marks do I have going down column G? I'm going to take that and I'm going to put it over into the box for total number of deaths. Hopefully that is zero for you, but there is that possibility. Same thing with column H, I, J. You're going to fill in the number of check marks you have in each one of those boxes and put it onto this form. You're going to take the total number of days away from work that you get from column K, and then the total number of days away from job or transfer restriction in column L and fill them out. And then finally, you're going to get down to that column M, and you're going to fill out how many injuries skin disorders, respiratory conditions, poisonings, hearing loss, and all other illnesses, fill out the appropriate line for that box. Over on the right-hand side, you're going to fill out all the establishment information, including your the next codes now, uh, and then you're going to basically put in the annual average number of employees, the total hours worked by the employees all last year, and finally, a company executive signs this form. This form is then going to be posted by February 1st, and they must stay up until April 30th. Where do you post these forms at? Well, you post them in high traffic areas. Uh, you want to make sure that they are out there where employees actually can see them. So time clock areas. Or if you have your employee Department of Labor posters posted in a certain area, such as a break room, that's usually a good spot for these to go in. Once again, just as a summary, basically if you do have an injury, you want to determine is it recordable, is it reportable, then you're going to fill out your OSHA 301 form within seven calendar working days. You're going to then transfer that information over to your OSHA 300 log that you will maintain throughout the year. And then at the end of the year or beginning of the next year, you're going to fill out that OSHA form 300A, which is the summary of all the accidents, injuries, recordables that have happened over the past year. Do OSHA forms need to be mailed to OSHA? No, they do not need to ever be mailed to OSHA unless it is specifically requested by them. Uh, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, at the beginning of each year, they do send a notification out to random facilities that they are going to be collecting your data for whatever particular year. Basically, what they do with this data is they keep it for statistics. They want to know about approximately in each industry 
how many number of days away from work have been going on, how many fatalities have been going on per industry. So they use that for a lot of different statistics that you can't find at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics and at the Department of Labor. But your facility may need to electronically report accident information to OSHA now. So who must submit information electronically to OSHA? Well, if you have an establishment with 250 or more employees, then you must do the electronic submission. Or if you have an establishment with 20 to 249 employees in certain high-risk industries, and that is a link there, it'll take you to the list of certain high-risk industries. And if you fall under one of those industries and you have 20 to 249 employees, then you must submit some of your information electronically as well. If you're an establishment with fewer than 20 employees, you do not have to routinely submit information to OSHA via the electronic submissions. So establishment, I've got a definition of that I'll show you in just a moment. So what do you actually have to submit? Well, in the high-risk industries, such as commercial truck shops, automotive parts, transportation facilities with 20 to 249 employees, you have to submit the information that's going to be on the 300A form. If you're a facility that has a single establishment has to more than 250 employees, you're going to be taking data from the 300A, the 300, and the 301 and submitting that electronically. And the information must be submitted by March 2nd. As some state plans have not adopted the requirement to submit injury data to OSHA yet, but they are going to be federally required to because they must get up to federal standards. Uh, so your electronic report submissions will be completed at this website here, OSHA.gov slash injury reporting slash ITA, that's the injury tracking application. You're going to need to set up an account in order to actually submit the information. A lot of times what you can do is just take the information off of your 300A and manually type it into the different boxes that OSHA is requiring under that website. However, if you're keeping a long log list of uh, recordable injuries, what you can do is actually download a template from them for uh, under this website here and you'll be able to transfer your information just by submitting a CSV file. A lot of times it's used as an Excel spreadsheet but it's saved under the CSV format which then will take the data and automatically populate it into the entry tracking application. However, make sure that it is the CSV file and not an Excel file. It will not upload under an Excel file. Okay, so some frequently asked questions. Can you define a single establishment? Well, here's the definition. Term establishment means a single physical location where business is conducted or where services or operations are performed. Where distinctly separate activities are performed at a single physical location, each activity shall be treated as a separate establishment. Typically, an establishment, as used in this part, refers to a field activity, regional office, area office, installation, or facility. Basically, if you have a campus of facilities, each one of those buildings could be a separate establishment. For instance, I like to use the car dealership reference. Uh, let's say that we have Joe Smith Chrysler, and next door we have Joe Smith Toyota, and next door to them, Joe Smith Chevrolet. Each one of those would be a separate establishment. Uh, now, if you have a campus, basically, where everything is kind of housed in one building, that would be your single establishment at that point. So if you have separate plants, maybe spread out geographically, those are going to be individual establishments. If you have them all on one campus, that could be all one single establishment, or you could break them out. We're talking about are we separated by different addresses here? Is it all under one address? Uh, so there could be some particulars that come into play. When counting the number of days away from work or the number of days of job transfer restriction, do I include the day of the injury as a partial day? No. So if the employee did work a little bit that day and then they went to MedCheck and they were sent home the rest of the day, that day is not counted in your days away from work or job transfer restrictions. It would be the next day if they were put on one of those restrictions. When counting the number of days away from work or the number of days of job transfer restriction, do I include weekends even if the employee does not normally work weekends? It's a possibility that they could work weekends. So yes, you have to count every calendar day uh, that they are away from work. So if they're on job transfer restriction for two weeks, we're talking then that employee has lost 14 days. It's not 10 days because it's a five-day work week. No, it's going to be on your OSHA 300 form as 14 days. Do I have to keep track of injuries for temporary agency employees that are working at my facility? Yes. Well, it depends, actually. So let me step back before I say completely yes to that. It depends on who is their direct supervisor. If 
you have a contract company come on site and do work and they have a direct supervisor that is there that is directing all the work and they are about their own company, then that company needs to maintain their own OSHA 300 form and that would go under theirs. If you have temporary agency employees come on site and they are assisting in some of your departments for seasonal help or anything like that, then they are direct supervision under your facility, your employer, then yes, those injuries would go on your OSHA 300 form. How do I record an injury when the injury occurred in one year, but the employee did not have days away from work or days of job transfer restriction until the following year? So we're talking about something that happens uh, close to New Year's at this point. Well, the injury must be recorded only one time in the year that it occurred. If an employee misses days in the following year due to that injury, then you must update the records of the previous year to include those days. If my submission has to be submitted electronically, what is the deadline for submission? And just as a reminder here for everybody, March 2nd is what we're looking at. Here's a scenario here that includes a motor vehicle. Two employees were on their way to a job site in December. They were rear-ended by another vehicle and both taken to the local hospital to get checked out. They were not on a job site, but on the way to a job site. Do we need to report this on our OSHA logs? This is a maybe. It depends on whether or not they were actually on their commute to work or not. If they came in, clocked in at a particular like main office, and then were headed to the job site, then they're no longer on their actual daily commute to work. They're actually traveling for the company. So that would be a recordable case at that point. If they're on their daily commute, they're on their way to the job site where they are going to clock in there, then more than likely, no, that's not going to be a recordable injury. So when it comes to motor vehicle accidents concerning work-relatedness, these three conditions must be met. The injury must occur when the employee is commuting to or from work, and not when the employee is traveling in the interest of the employer. The injury cannot take place in the company parking lot or company access road, and the injury must result from a motor vehicle accident. Uh, OSHA's intention is to interpret the exemption as to include only those motor vehicle accidents involving moving vehicles which are solely being used for commuting at the end of the time of the accident. So if all of these three are met, then no, this is not going to be a recordable case. What if the fatality, inpatient hospitalization, amputation, or loss of an eye does not occur during or right after the work-related incident? And I kind of already covered this earlier. If the fatality occurs within 30 days of that incident, or if an inpatient hospitalization or loss of an eye occurs within 24 hours of the work-related incident, then you must still report it to OSHA. Excellent. Great job, Zach. Thanks for your insights and expertise. Uh, before we start the Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Additionally, the complete slide presentation from this webcast also is available for you to download. You can find those slides in the resources widget on the left side of your screen. And with that, we'll get to some questions. Um, Zach, as you might have expected, there were a few that are timely pertaining to COVID-19, and they ask, to what extent or how would you record those if it's pertaining to COVID-19? Yes, I kind of figured that COVID was definitely going to be uh, a hot topic, and I knew that was probably going to be asked on this uh, particular presentation. So back in April, OSHA did actually release a statement on whether COVID-19 confirmed cases would be a recordable type of case. And in this situation, basically they've said that if you are in healthcare or an emergency responder, you still need to make the work-related determinations, which Obviously, it's going to be very difficult to determine whether or not somebody contracted this particular virus uh, while performing work. Uh, but if you are not in one of those industries, such as law enforcement, firefighting, medical services, healthcare, then OSHA is kind of exempting uh, COVID-19 from being a recordable case so that it kind of alleviates you from making that work-related determination. However, they did say that uh, there, there are some exemptions to that exemption. And that is basically if uh, there's a number of cases developed among workers who closely together without an alternative explanation. So basically, 
an example of that, uh, for instance, I know locally we've had a, a meat packing plant where there was an outbreak of COVID-19. Uh, that's probably going to be a work-relatedness that you can determine that, yes, everybody did pick that up uh, in the same location. So that would probably fall under uh, responsibility to record that or possibly report that if it turned into a death. Uh, or there was evidence that was reasonably available to the employer that the uh, employee picked that up in the workplace. However, once again, it's going to be very difficult to determine that uh, the virus was contracted in the workplace if we have a one-off. Now, if you have a rash of outbreaks at that point, yes, it is possible uh, that you could have uh, a work-relatedness at that point. So it's still difficult to tell. There's some gray area there, but for the most part, for most industries, there's going to be an exemption uh, for determining whether or not COVID would be a recordable case. All right. Um, well, next question. Do you recommend notifying OSHA about reportable accidents beyond the required reporting period or playing the game of catch me if you can since the employer will still get a penalty for not reporting or late reporting? Right. So <laughs> I do get that a lot. I mean, we're all in a business world here and nobody wants to, I mean, everybody thinks of OSHA officers as the uh, the big, bad, scary people that come on site and all they do is site. No, what they're out there to do is to protect the employee from any type of hazard that could be out there. So not report or not reporting may uh, get you into hot water in the long run as well, too. So I actually posed this question to an OSHA officer, a federal OSHA officer at one point. I said, you know, we have clients out there that they, uh, they'll call us up about a week after a, an inpatient hospitalization, and then they're like, oh, I didn't even realize I was supposed to report that. Should I report it? And, of course, I always tell them, yes, you should report that. You should do your due diligence because you don't want to, you know, do anything that could get yourself into hot water later on. Now, I asked this to the OSHA officer. I said, how would OSHA know if somebody did not report that? And they said typically how they do find out is, is that uh, a lot of times a, a case will go into almost like a workers' compensation lawsuit sometimes. Uh, and that's one of the first things that an attorney will probably, that's working for that employee, an attorney will ask for is basically about the OSHA reportable case uh, so that they can review that. And if OSHA says that, no, we don't have any reportable case on this injury for this particular employee, that's going to obviously raise a lot of red flags and questions and could result in an investigation as well, too. Um, so I've heard different things out there where people have said, well, maybe the insurance company, once it gets turned in, does OSHA review those? Typically, no, because of HIPAA reasons. They don't really have access to that information or anything like that. Uh, so I never advise playing that game. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a lucky person in myself. And, uh, you know, it's not really about being lucky. It's making sure that you're controlling the work environment so that you're providing a safe working atmosphere for all of your employees at all times. And OSHA is there really to help. Yes, they can pull out their scary fine book or citations notepad, but they're there to make sure that you don't have injury. So I would definitely always encourage reporting. Okay, next one. For those non-mandatory NAICS codes, will BLS let the organization know at the beginning of the calendar year if they will require reporting? They should. Normally, they send out a letter to anybody that's going to be a part of that whole survey. So it's basically Bureau of Labor and Statistics, they wanted, they're, they're doing it for survey purposes so that they can update their statistical numbers. And that usually at the beginning of the year, they do send out a letter stating that they are requiring you to uh, provide them with your numbers. Next one asks, uh, will you briefly go over parking lot criteria that would make an injury reportable? Yeah, because this one actually does get, uh, that's, that, that's a good question because it does get brought up a lot. Uh, you have Parking lots are notorious, at least in the, uh, the the rust belt, I guess you would call it, that for the slips and falls. You know, I, I'm I live myself personally in a state where uh, we are subjected to winters and have ice in the parking lot, and so a lot of times that gets determined like, oh, what you know, this happened in the parking lot. Obviously, my employees, this is not really work related. Well, you know, as I said in the presentation, yes, this can be work related because if two vehicles collide in the parking lot, then that's the motor vehicle exemption at that point. And that's really the only exemption you have when it comes to the parking lot. 
or walkways or the when they're walking out of work going back to their cars. So if they as soon as they the employee kind of gets out of the vehicle and puts that foot onto the pavement, anything that happens to them, unless it falls under one of those other exemptions, can be is most likely going to be work related and going to be a recordable case. And the most common one obviously that does happen is the slip and fall in the parking lot due to ice. And yes, that's in you know, most cases, unless there's a, some other exemption that comes into play, those are going to be work-related cases. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, any access roads coming in, the parking lot, you know, the walkway. Now, like I said, if they're in their car driving and they get in a motor vehicle accident, that's where the other uh, driving exemption can come into play. However, uh, most times we're talking about somebody walking into work or walking out of work, and you know, the po parking lot is a very common area for recording. Recordables. Can you go to the doctor and have it not be recordable? Uh, yes, you can. So if you go to the doctor, basically we're talking about, you know, first aid. It's that definition once again of first aid. Was any first aid actually administered by the doctor? You know, if you go to the doctor for something in the eye, I think I talked about this in a little bit earlier, is that if you get a little dirt debris in the eye, and the uh, the doctor just flushes that out with the kind of a saline solution. Uh, once again, that's first aid at that point. And you go if you go beyond that, and then that's going to be a recordable. But if the doctor only does that, and they release you back to the work day, no restrictions, no uh, you know, no restrictions, no re recommended time off, then that's not going to be a recordable case. When does the clock start for eight-hour and 24-hour reporting? Uh, that clock starts as soon as you are made aware of the incident occurring. And really, you should be aware of that because, I mean, you should have a thumbprint on anything that does happen uh, at the facility. I mean, nobody should be working alone or anything like that. Um, and things should be monitored as well, too. So, of course, you know, an incident that's going to result in something that's going to be reportable is probably going to be pretty well known, and word is going to travel fast on that. Uh, so it really shouldn't be a matter of days or anything like that. But as soon as you are made aware of that uh, inpatient hospitalization or death, then uh, you do need to make sure that you are reporting that. Got a few questions that present some, some hypotheticals. Um, is it a recordable case or a reportable case if someone gets stitches? Uh, when it comes to stitches, yes, it's going to be a recordable case uh, because that's something that's going to be on first aid at that point. So uh, once again, you got to go back to those definitions of what is first aid. And yeah, when they have to have stitches administered, that's going to be, like I said, beyond first aid, and that's going to be a recordable case. Uh, unless it's pretty severe and they're going to keep uh, that person in hospital and inpatient care, then that's going to be a possible reportable at that point, too. Next one, um, for someone working outdoors who's stung by a bee or a tick and then receives treatment at a medical provider, is this recordable? Uh, that depends. Once again, we're going back to the definition of first aid. So if they go... Uh, if they get stung by an insect or and they go basically to um, and this is during work hours once again we got to meet these other criteria as well too is this work related was this you know work being performed at the same time uh, so they do get stung by a bee they go to the doctor and maybe it's just first aid they're just as a precautionary thing they're not sure if they are allergic or not you know the stinger gets pulled out and they get sent back to work and no sign symptoms appear at that point well that's not going to be recordable if they go to the doctor and all of a sudden we're talking about maybe an epinephrine shot or you know there's we're slowly finding out that this person is contracting maybe a disease from a, a tick bite or it could be you know that they are um allergic to a, a bee sting, now we're talking about this could be a, re, a recordable case. If the worker has been released for light duty but refuses to report, how do you determine the days away from work on Form 300? So if they've been released to work by the physician but they're refusing, <laughs> sorry, they don't get to you know control your OSHA 300 form on that subject. So it's all about what the physician says. Uh, or you can make the determination yourself as the employer or the physician. Um, I have not really come into experience with many uh, employers that say, no, 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 we want you to go ahead and stay home an extra two days. 
Most of them want the employees back to work as soon as possible. So if the physician has released them, that's all the number of days you need to count. You don't, if the employee decides not to come back to work for another week, you don't need to count that on the uh, uh, days away from work uh, OSHA 300 form. This next one is looking for some clarification. It says, I'm still confused about whether or not to call OSHA. If the incident is a recordable but not reportable one, should I be calling OSHA and updating the 300 log or only updating the 300 log? Right. So there's the, it's, it's funny because both terms sound similar <laughs> and a lot of people have confused the terms. I mean, most the, the reportable and recordable sound like, oh, it's kind of like the same thing. They're actually not. So uh, the reportable is you report to OSHA in the case of it results in a death, inpatient hospitalization, loss of an eye or an amputation of any kind. Uh, so that's when you have to notify OSHA and pick up the phone or go to their website and uh, put in the data that you had a reportable incident happen. Recordable is anything that you would put on the OSHA 300 log. Uh, and so you're still going to put those reportables on the OSHA 300 log, uh, but if it's not doesn't fall into that category of reportable, there is no need to call OSHA uh, about anything unless they're calling you for information on something. But um, so if it is just like, a, you know, maybe a, a, a cut or a laceration and the employee goes and receives stitches, uh, and that falls under the recordable, uh, meets the definition of a recordable, then you're going to put it on the OSHA 300 log. You're going to record the number of days away or hours of restriction time. And then that's no need to call OSHA in those situations. You only need to call when it turns into the reportable. Do you count weekends and holidays? Yes. Uh, if we're talking about we're on a recordable, and the employee is uh, recommended by a physician to, or ordered by a physician, I should say, to um, take the next two weeks off. Well, there's a weekend in there. You do have to count the weekend. Uh, so it's the number of calendar days. It's not the number of business days. It's any day that the employer could have, or the employee could have possibly worked. Whether or not work was going on, if they possibly could have worked, you count those days. So we're talking about counting the weekends and the holidays. Is it considered self-inflicted if an employee swings a hammer and misses hitting a finger? Or I mean, <laughs> misses, yeah, sorry, yes, the, the phrasing. No, no, you're fine. Uh, I, I think I understand what we're talking about there. So if they, they're swinging the hammer and they miss and they hit their thumb, um, <laughs> it's not self-inflicted. So that's, I mean, you may think to yourself, yes, this, this is self-inflicted because they should have known better or something. I mean, a lot of people uh, think, to themselves, oh, just use your common sense and all that. Well, you know, <laughs> if somebody misses and hits their thumb, that yes, that's going to be work-related and it's not going to meet that definition of self-inflicted at that point. It's just an accident that's happened. And so you do have to re record that if it meets the other definitions of the recordable. Next one circles back um, to COVID-19 in, in an earlier slide with some bullet points. It says, with respect to COVID-related inpatient hospitalizations, how would you interpret the standard? Uh, so once again, kind of going back to what OSHA's statement on the release of their information back in April is if it results in an inpatient hospitalization, um, if, it's, if you fall under one of those uh, diff different healthcare organizations, such as healthcare, uh, we're talking um, um, emergency responders, first responders, uh, law enforcement, anything along those lines, then yes, you need to make the determination of was this work-related? And that's where the big question is at. Can you determine that it was work-related? You know, if you do have somebody that's working in healthcare and they're working around uh, a lot of COVID-19 patients, then you could probably make the determination that yes, they, they contracted this via work-related. And unfortunately, if it did result in a tragedy, uh, then you would probably have to make the determination that, yes, this is a reportable and you're going to have to call OSHA to inform them. I don't know that they're really doing much investigation on those types of reportables or anything like that. Uh, what they are doing is trying to make sure that everybody is doing the proper CDC guidance for um, and having the measures in place for employees. So basically, if you did a reportable uh, on a COVID-19 case and you're in the healthcare industry, uh, OSHA is probably going to come back and say, okay, do you have all the proper PPE? Are you, you know, making sure that you're trying to do the best you can with social distancing? Are you trying to put all the uh, 
preventative measures in place. Uh, they just want to confirm that you're doing that. If you're not doing that at all, they'll probably take issue with that. Uh, if you're not one of those industries that I mentioned, uh, then at this point they have made that exemption that that would not be a reportable uh, unless you have determined somehow, some way that it is work related. Next one says, we're a company of less than 10 employees at all times of the year. Do we still have to record and report work-related deaths? And what about COVID-19 cases? Uh, so when it comes to, there's the exemption that if you have 10 or less employees, you do not have to maintain the OSHA 300 logs, uh, but you still are subject to uh, reporting any type of case to OSHA, whether if you have basically one of the, anything that falls under the reportables, once again, you do have to actually do that reporting to OSHA. So the death, the amputation, loss of eye, uh, inpatient hospitalization, 10 or less employees, you still meet that requirement that you have to report that. And then COVID-19, as I just mentioned, I think we kind of answered that one. If you're not in that industry, OSHA's looking at that as an exemption for now. Okay, well, uh, looks like we have time for one more question. If an employee gets injured in 2019, but is still on temporary modified work until 2020, would I need to count the 2020 days in the 2019 summary? Yes. So if basically if it happens in 2019, yes, you count, you're counting the calendar days. And if that does carry over, we're talking about something happening possibly in December carrying over into 2020, you count those days on the 2019 form. And if it keeps going, you just kind of uh, update the form as it goes. And you're capping off at 180 days, remember. Uh, you don't have to go any more than that. Uh, but if the injury, um, I'm sorry, you do not have to put those days on the 2020 log. So it's only 2020 is only about injuries that happen in 2020. If we still have days away that have carried over from 2019, that only goes on the 2019 log. Well, thank you, Zach. With that, uh, we end today's presentation. Apologies if we did not get to, to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to Zach. Again, uh, we hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen and to give us your feedback. And what's more, if you've not already done so, the complete slide presentation from the webcast also is available for you to download. And those slides, again, are in the resources widget on the left side of the screen. With that, we end today's uh, Safety and Health Magazine webcast. would like to thank Zach Pacello, everyone at KPA, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, have a great day, and stay safe.